This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. A patient with an unexplained cough is quite commonly seen in an outpatient primary care practice. And while there are a number of potential causes, fortunately, most are relatively benign. However, determining the cause can be challenging and it's best to use an organized approach in the evaluation. Using the patient's history, chest imaging studies, pulmonary function tests, and occasional laboratory tests, we're usually able to determine the cause. What are the most common causes of a persistent cough? What approach is recommended in the evaluation? And what should we do when no cause is apparent? We'll answer these questions and more in today's podcast, The Unexplained Cough. Our guest is Dr. Sumed Haskodi, a pulmonologist in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Sumed, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Daryl. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this podcast. Let's start by having you give us the definition of a chronic cough. So quite simply, a chronic cough is a cough that lasts for longer than eight weeks, which we term as a chronic cough. I see a fair number of patients in my outpatient practice with this problem, and I imagine it must make up a fair number of referrals to your practice. Is that correct? Yes. We uh, actually have a subspecialty group for chronic cough management, and we typically see a lot of referred patients that come in for an unexplained chronic cough. But in a primary care setting, actually, when they have studied this problem, it actually accounts for a far larger number of patients if you account for the general population. So there was actually a primary care population that was studied where chronic cough was noted in about 12% of respondents. Mm -hmm. And in population-based studies, there was a recent one from Denmark, which showed that chronic cough was reported in 4% of the general population. So if you extrapolate that, to the US population of about 330 million, we get to over 13 million people affected with chronic cough uh, in the United States. At least from some estimates, it accounts for over 30 million annual visits and billions of dollars spent on consultations, testing, treatments, over-the-counter remedies, and so on. Mm -hmm. So it is a large problem. Yeah, it is. Is a chronic cough merely a nuisance for our patients? Does it have any potential complications? Yeah. So I think my answer would have been different if this was before the pandemic. And I think with the pandemic, people have in general become very acutely aware of coughing anywhere in the community. And this creates a lot of negative perceptions. So patients with chronic cough often report to me that they feel embarrassed to go out to eat. They feel very self-conscious at family gatherings, and they can sometimes even have their performance affected at their workplace especially in patients who come from occupations where they are required to speak for extended periods of time, because speaking can often be a trigger for chronic cough. Aside from these issues, I mean, there are, of course, medical complications that can happen as well. These can range from conditions like stress, urinary incontinence. Patients can sometimes develop hernias, very severe bouts of coughing that can lead to a cough syncope. Fractured ribs have been observed. And sometimes they're less medically concerning problems, but they can alarm the patient, problems like a subconjunctival hemorrhage, for example. So there are a number of other non-nuisance sort of complications that can also happen uh, as a result of a chronic cough. 
Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the stress incontinence. I'm a geriatrician, and I see a fair number of patients with stress incontinence, and mm -hmm. very often their trigger is a persistent cough. And yep. um, often it's nothing more than taking uh, ACE inhibitor, but it, uh, you know, if you get rid of the cough, you really improve their symptoms. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the pathophysiologic mechanism of a cough. What's the purpose of a cough? Yeah, so cough is actually uh, a fascinating and unique reflex. Similar to reflexes like swallowing or urination, it has an involuntary but also a voluntary component. If you compare it to something like sneezing, for example, one cannot sneeze voluntarily, but you can cough voluntarily and you can also suppress a cough voluntarily. If you're in the middle of a live music performance, you would try your best to suppress your cough. So it is possible, at least to some extent, to try to voluntarily control a cough. In a, in a purely protective form, the cough is important for expelling irritants or foreign material or mucus and so on. So there is a protective element as well. And for this protective element, uh, sensory information is carried by the vagal nerve endings from a variety of anatomical regions that can initiate a cough. So this includes everything from the upper airway, from the pharynx, the larynx, the main airways, the trachea, bronchi, and all the various many, many generations of bronchial tubes, all the way down to the lung parenchyma. They contain vagal nerve endings. And in particular, the C fibers uh, regulate the defensive cough reflex. And they're sensitive to a lot of chemical as well as mechanical stimuli that can lead to activation. And then this information is carried to the brainstem at the nucleus tractus solitarius, and then is followed by an efferent motor signal to various respiratory muscles that then increase respiratory, increase the pressure in the thoracic cavity, the larynx is closed, the pressure builds up, and then an explosive uh, release occurs, which then causes the cough. A lot of receptor types are involved, and I won't go into all of them, but some of these involve uh, mu opioid receptors, which as we all know, opioids suppress cough. But there is also uh, interest in many other receptors that have been identified, mainly for targets for drug development. The most relevant of these is the P2X3 type of ATP receptor. And I mentioned that in particular because the drugs targeting that receptor are probably the closest to market. There are many other receptors that are also part of this, NK1, NMDA, and so on. I won't go into all the details, but drug development is focusing on some of these uh, receptors. Now, the other really interesting aspect of cough physiology is that there is integration at subcortical and cortical levels as well. And this is where the connection with the voluntary control of cough comes in. And this part is poorly understood, but is thought to involve the overlap with chronic cough and things like cough hypersensitivity and the association with central sensitization disorders, which can often be seen in chronic cough as well. So complex mechanism, and that translates into a lot of potential causes. Yeah. So let's talk about that. What are the most common causes of a chronic cough? Yeah, a couple of you know really straightforward causes would include smoking or other inhalational exposures and ACE inhibitor use. You know, ACE inhibitor use has an incidence of cough, probably 20% or in some reports a little bit higher, but it's fairly common. And these can be easily identified on history. Beyond those common causes, the major causes include things like upper airway cough syndrome, which we used to call post-nasal rip previously, asthma, non-asthmatic eosinophilic bronchitis, 
and gastroesophageal reflux disease. Now, cough can also be an important presenting symptom of intrinsic pulmonary disease or airway disease. So those are also extremely relevant causes, or it could be from uh, things like chronic aspiration. So those would be some of the common causes. I think when patients come in concerned about their cough, they're worried that they've got some type of a malignancy. How frequent is that compared to the other causes? Yeah, cough can be extremely worrisome to patients. You know, I also spend some of my time in the lung nodule and lung cancer clinic. And by the time a cancer leads to a cough, it is either quite far along or uh, it may be an endobronchial lesion. And this is why, as we will talk about a little further, some of the red flag symptoms that we need to look for would be to identify potential malignancy that may be underlying the cough, because that would really prompt uh, a more urgent referral to pulmonary medicine. Okay. Earlier, you mentioned cough hypersensitivity syndrome. Mm -hmm. Can you expand on that? What, what is that exactly? Yeah. So, you know, as we were talking about the mechanism of cough, this and this part is poorly understood in terms of a pathophysiology standpoint. It has been thought to overlap somehow in terms of its presentation and its physiology to entities such as chronic pain or central sensitization disorders. As far as a cough hypersensitivity in terms of the cough is concerned, it usually develops months to years after vigorous coughing. And that leads to chronic damage to these nerve endings that are located in the upper airway, typically near the larynx. And then possibly through the cortical projections from the brainstem, there may be an increased central urge to cough as well. And this in total leads to a heightened sensitivity. So the larynx becomes more sensitive to even non-noxious stimuli. And then in response to the non-noxious stimuli, patients produce a more and more vigorous cough, and that leads to more injury to those nerve endings. And then it just becomes a perpetuating cycle of cough, injury, cough. So there are a few key elements that we look for on history with uh, this condition. And that's one of them is called laryngeal paresthesia, which is patients often describe an abnormal sensation in the throat. Like they can describe it as a constriction and itch and irritation, a frog in the throat, you know, many ways to describe patients use many terms to describe the sensation. They often describe what we call allotasia, which is a cough in response to stimuli that do not normally produce a cough, like talking, laughing, changes in air temperature, and so on. And then the last element is called hypertasia, which is an excessive response to common noxious stimuli like smoke, for example. So these sorts of elements are what we look for when we evaluate patients for a neurogenic cough, which actually I just mentioned the other term for it, which we use as a neurogenic cough or cough hypersensitivity syndrome. And the word neurogenic comes from just this background pathophysiology that involves various neuronal pathways that connect it to the cortical and subcortical regions. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about the evaluation now. Patient comes in, says, uh, I've had this persistent cough. We start with the medical history. What questions mm -hmm. should we ask? You mentioned red flag symptoms. What are those and what should we be looking for? Some of the red flag symptoms would be things like hemoptysis or weight loss. If patients give a history of something like an inhaled foreign body, for example, those might require more urgent pulmonary evaluation and maybe a bronchoscopy or other cancer workup and so on. But typically on the history, I look for things like cigarette smoking. I try to quantify the extent of cigarette smoking, the duration, occupational or inhalational exposures. 
ACE inhibitor use, I check in on things like travel history or immunocompromised status because that might be relevant in a chronic cough like tuberculosis, for example. Then I focus on symptoms targeting the big three, as we call them, which is asthma, gastroesophageal reflux, and upper airway cough. You know, wheezing or a history of allergies, atopic conditions, these can often be present in asthma. Conditions like, so nocturnal awakenings, for example, can occur in conditions like asthma or in reflux or even in sleep apnea. We discussed those history elements that are really important in a neurogenic cough. A neurogenic cough also tends to be minimally uh, productive. It tends to have those elements of allotasia, hypertasia, and laryngeal paresthesia. And it can often be absent during sleep. So those can be some important historical clues that can point us towards this condition. Also, other cardinal pulmonary symptoms should be always asked about, like sputum production, dyspnea, wheezing, and pleuritic chest pain. So those would be the cardinal pulmonary symptoms, which because cough can also be the manifestation of a pulmonary condition. I also do ask about uh, snoring and sleep apnea type symptoms because OSA can be seen in patients with a chronic cough. Mm -hmm. How about the physical exam? Is there anything yeah. on exam that we may find useful? Yeah. So from you know the usual pulmonary physical exam, you know things like wheezing could suggest asthma or COPD. Coarse ronchi could indicate airway mucus, such as is seen in bronchiectasis. If you hear fine Velcro-like crackles, that could indicate an early interstitial lung disease or more wet crackles might indicate heart failure. And all of these conditions can present with a cough. Aside from the regular pulmonary exam, I also look for an oropharyngeal exam. I look for crowding of oropharyngeal structures, look for their uh, Friedman score, which is similar to the Malampati score, but with the tongue inside the mouth. And that can sometimes be associated with a risk for sleep apnea. I look for nasal findings. Uh, these can be difficult to appreciate on just regular bedside or in the clinic anterior rhinoscopy. But if you see boggy turbinates or a lot of discharge, or if there is a clear drainage that is running down the pharyngeal wall, I mean, those could indicate rhinitis or rhinosinusitis. I also try to listen for the type of cough. If the patient has episodes of coughing during the encounter, I try to listen for, does it sound like a lot of sputum came up with the cough or was it non-productive or was it productive? What was the quality of the cough? How much energy is the patient expending in the cough? Is it a really violent, vigorous type of cough? Because as we spoke earlier, the vigorous, intense cough is sort of what leads to a neurogenic type process over many months or years. So those are some of the things that I look for. Okay. Most of the patients that I see will end up with a chest imaging study, usually starting with the chest x-ray. But when do you go to more elaborate imaging, a CT scan or MRI? Right. The typical initial assessment should include a chest X-ray and pulmonary function testing, and perhaps a CBC with differential because I like to look for eosinophilia. Our usual pulmonary function testing includes spirometry with a diffusion capacity. And if either of these is found to be abnormal, we reflex to total lung capacity or lung volume measurements. We also routinely obtain an exhaled nitric oxide level, which helps to identify eosinophilic airway inflammation, which can be seen in asthma or non-asthmatic eosinophilic bronchitis. But if there is anything abnormal identified on the chest x-ray or on the history, uh, then we might need to get a chest CT scan. If there are any abnormalities like bronchiectasis or if interstitial lung disease is suggested on an x-ray or if there's any concern for malignancy, then a chest CT scan would absolutely be indicated. 
certain other tests we get, uh, if asthma is strongly suspected and the initial testing has not been revealing, we perform a methacholine challenge. If uh, the nasal symptoms need to be further explored, we perform a rhinolaryngoscopy or a sinus CT, depending on perhaps a patient has had prior sinus surgeries in the past. For further evaluation of GERD, we do a 24-hour pH impedance study or an upper endoscopy. We may need to do a bronchoscopy for direct visualization of the airway if there is any suspe suspicion for an endobronchial lesion or for dynamic airway collapse, which can also cause chronic cough or a sleep apnea evaluation, as uh, we mentioned earlier. Do you have any rough idea of how many patients who come in with this complaint have a cause determined? I see patients who come in for an unexplained chronic cough. So yeah, I, yeah. I don't initiate the evaluation in many patients. In most of the, almost all the patients that I see, they've usually been referred for a second or a third opinion at that point where they've already had many of these conditions evaluated or treated, or they've been through this for several months before they get referred. So I'm not sure, but at least as per the guidelines, this is the initial approach that is recommended. So it is likely based on clinical success with uh, utilizing this sort of approach. But if patients are not diagnosed by the time when they come to a pulmonologist, I think we are usually able to identify the cause based on the history and the physical exam and the testing that we've described so far. Yeah. So you, you actually see the tough cases. So we cherry pick the easy ones and <laughs> send you the harder ones. So let's talk about management. Let's say we've identified a patient we think has upper airway cough. What do we do for that? So the first thing I initiate is a saline sinus rinse. I think that's a very simple, over-the-counter, easy-to-use type of treatment. I do recommend that patients use distilled water, or if that is not possible, then to use purified bottled water, but definitely do not use tap water because there can be microbial contamination in regular tap water. And that should be used to dissolve the salt packets and then rinsing can be performed once or twice a day. The frequency of rinsing can be decreased depending on the symptom burden. Uh, it can certainly go up or down depending on how patients do. They shouldn't do rinsing if they also have uh, a blocked middle ear because that could potentially worsen and lead to otitis media. But aside from that, there are very few other cautions to doing a saline sinus rinse. Once the rinse is completed, a simple, again, over-the-counter solution would be to use something like a nasal steroid like fluticasone. These are available over-the-counter. And so this would be a nice, easy initial regimen to treat post-nasal rip symptoms. There is often a trigger for these symptoms. And if there is any avoidable allergenic trigger or exposure, then effort should be taken to mitigate those uh, allergenic exposures. So this is what I would start with. And if that is not sufficient, then uh, you could further escalate to using an antihistamine or an anticholinergic nasal spray. Sometimes we use the, or I should say oftentimes in at least our practice, we use the compounded uh, Mayo Clinic mometazone diphenhydramine ipratropium combination nasal spray, which is made in our pharmacy. Okay. Asthma, I guess, is pretty straightforward. How about acid reflux? You know, that's so common. So many mm -hmm. patients have it. How do you approach that? Right. So it's important to clarify that uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease refers to the backwards movement of gastric contents up the esophagus. So this is a physical phenomenon. Now, we do treat it with acid suppression, but it is a physical phenomenon at the end of the day. And acid suppression can lower the amount of gastric acid, but 
it has been well reported that non-acid or weakly acidic reflux can also lead to chronic cough. So it's really important to also advise patients on lifestyle changes. And that would include dietary modifications, avoiding foods or beverages that are associated with worsening reflux or relaxing the lower esophageal sphincter, avoiding food or snacks in the last three hours before bedtime, because that is usually the amount of time that the gastric phase of digestion would be for, elevating the head by about six to eight inches using a wedge pillow or using blocks under the head side of the bed and working on weight reduction if that is applicable in, in uh, that specific patient because having abdominal obesity is also associated with uh, reflux. Okay. Well, let's say we have a patient, we can't find the cause. Do you have any empiric therapy that you try to see if that'll help? Various medications are available like benzonatate or dextromethorphan, codeine, guaifenesin, and so on. I use these in extremely limited uh, circumstances because of limited efficacy mainly. Opioids can be helpful if cough suppression is needed from a palliative perspective and so on. Uh, but typically, I stay away from those medications mainly because uh, there has been uh, limited efficacy. But I do see a lot of patients on benzonatate, which is known as tessalon pearls. But I don't think that there is a robust data for uh, efficacy there. Now, if we have identified that the patient has features suggestive of neurogenic cough, then at least in my practice, over 50% of my patients, I would say, end up with that as a sort of diagnosis, which would be neurogenic cough. And in those patients, I think a lot of it is discussion and behavioral adjustment oriented, and then some of it is pharmacotherapy. And in the discussion, I try to reassure the patient that you know there is no serious disease that we've identified from the initial testing. Now, many of these patients feel frustrated that all the tests are normal, but I still have this really intense cough. So they feel frustrated that is this just all in my head, you know, so a lot of the discussion has to focus on sort of reorienting and reassuring the patient that this is not an insurmountable problem. It just takes a little bit of time to work through. I discussed behavioral adjustments and working on techniques to silently clear the throat or swallowing instead of coughing more and more violently. And we work through some uh, behavioral techniques like that. I start in terms of pharmacotherapy, I start with lozenges that contain benzocaine. There is an over-the-counter version of this available. Every store carries its own brand of benzocaine lozenges. They're marketed for sore throat, or uh, there is a brand called Sepacol that's available. It's, it's all the same. It contains benzocaine. We also make a medicated lollipop that contains tetracaine here. Uh, so that can be used as well. And then we've used some neuromodulatory medications with varying degrees of success. Amitriptyline uh, and duloxetine would be some of the meds that I uh, reach for first, but medications like gabapentin have also been used. And there is some trial data for these. It is not large scale or the effect size has not been very impressive. A lot of trials are underway, especially targeting some of those more specific cough pathway receptors. And so those trials are eagerly awaited. In the primary care setting, if there is ever a thought that, oh, which neuromodulator should I start? You know, maybe that would be a time to refer the patient to an unexplained chronic cough type of a clinic to help assist with that sort of management. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's important to realize the uh, significance of reassuring a patient that they don't have a serious cause. Uh, I've had numerous patients who come in and say, you know, I'm not all that worried about the cough. I just want to make sure I don't have a lung cancer. Right. And uh, it's very much like a headache. You know, if you yeah. can really assure the patient that this is not a serious problem, they say, oh, then I'm not worried. It's not a big issue. Right. Right. 
when should we refer patients to you? Yeah, I think if the initial evaluation shows any concerning pathology or if there are any of those red flag symptoms, I think a referral should be made right at the outset. But if in the primary care setting, you've gone through the initial testing and been you know, gone through the detailed history, uh, as we talked about, and address some of the common causes, and still there is insufficient control of the patient's symptoms, then that would be another good opportunity to refer the patient. Because then at that point, it becomes an unexplained chronic cough. And I think then it might be something unusual uh, and might need more in-depth evaluation or specialty care. Okay. Well, Sumit, you've given us a lot of information. Can you kind of summarize by giving two or three key points? I think chronic cough is a very common problem and a frequent reason for primary care consultation. The most common causes can usually be identified with detailed history and a few basic tests, which should be easily available. The treatment for the main three or four causes of chronic cough should focus on not just pharmacologic management, but also on lifestyle modifications, because as we discussed earlier, a lot of these can be made worse by presence of lifestyle factors and can improve with lifestyle modification. And cough can also be a common symptom of underlying lung disease. So specialty consultation should be sought if the initial management doesn't produce the desired result. We've been discussing the unexplained cough with pulmonologist Dr. Sumed Haskoti from the Mayo Clinic. Sumed, thank you for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. I'm glad to be part of this podcast. Thank you very much. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.